Well, we're in the book of James. Wow, what a great study it has been. And, and James is, is a guy that, well, he just does not dance around the subject very well. Well, we're in the fourth chapter of the book of James. And, and, and the title that I want to give to this study tonight is, Why Can't We Just Get Along? And now, in this past six months, as you have been enclosed in at times with your family, it has been the, the perfect utopia, right? Everyone got along. No one got, <laughs> you know what? You know, your mouths are covered, but I can see your eyes rolling, all right? And it's, the truth is, is that everyone has issues from time to time. We're, we're in a society that is absolutely riddled with conflict. And every side, in every arena of our lives, at work, at school, at home, in our community, in our neighborhoods, and sometimes even in the church, can you believe that, that that happens? Sometimes people think as they're driving down the road, it is their road. No one else has ever drive by any of those folks. Or the idea of, of, I know some of you guys, you may feel that you should have the choice who should be playing the next Cardinals game or something of this sort. But we have disagreement times in, in, in family members or, you know, what clothes you're wearing or responsibilities or personality clashes and even, you know, if you have a large family, who's using the bathroom next, you know. But the truth of the matter is, is that there's always that misconception of wondering about we don't always understand. And, and we, we get in those conflicts with each other. And, and what do we do? The reality is conflict is always going to be a part of our lives. In fact, we see it, you know, within the Word of God. There was in the church in First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, and now in the book of James, we're seeing he's addressing the issue of conflict because that is a reality of life. Now, Bill Hybels, anybody know who, you know, anybody here of Bill, Bill Hybels? He's just an amazing preacher. He, he has this little home mission church of 16,000 people. And, and it's just, it's just a, a wonderful man. And, and he talks about conflict. And there at Willow Creek at his church, he says, well, you know, unity isn't the word in which they describe our relationship within this church. We, uh, the public concept of unity is a fantasy where people think that disagreement never really happens. And no one has strong opinions on anything. And, well, maybe the worship team has strong opinions because they're a you know, worship team. And, and, but, but, but there is... Uh, everyone has opinions. So he says, instead of using the term unity... They use the word community. Let's not pretend we never disagree. Let's not pretend that, okay? Right. In fact, if you pretend and you live in that, that's what is called repressed anger. And when you repress that, somewhere along the line, something is going to trigger it, and it is not, well, it's going to erupt. So that happens. So what do we do in all this is that he makes a statement. The mark of community, true biblical unity, is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of a reconciling spirit. Wow. 
Just, just wrap your mind around that. You see, we as a body of Christ, we have a duty to be able to care, sincerely care, about the well-being of each and every one of us. And the very core of Christianity is all a part of it. We have a holy duty to preserve the dignity and of all human beings. We have that responsibility. This is what I love about our church here. Because we have such a diverse congregation. And I love the diversity that we have. But it's that diversity in which we have that brings that community. But, but it's sometimes it's, it's easier to say than actually to do. But think of the people that you most detest. Well, you really are to respect them. Think of the qualities of the people that mostly upset you. And nevertheless, you are to be kind to those individuals. Think of the cultures and the subcultures, if any, that makes, uh, makes you uncomfortable either of being ethnic or political groups. And you want to alienate them, but you are to embrace the people from every one of those groups. Think of the personalities that kind of are obnoxious to you. Well, you get the point. Because he tells us that we are to love one another. He doesn't say love one another if. I, I used to, well, when times like teaching parental things and that, it says honor your mother and father. It doesn't say honor your mother and father if they are good at being a parent. It says honor them because that is what he has called us to do. So the key in all this, how do we get along? How, how do we handle conflict? You know, two people get married and they want to live in marital bliss and doesn't find very long that they're living in marital brawls. A group of people want to start a church and all of a sudden, you know, Pastor Anthony is going to be starting his uh, Navajo church in the turn of the century maybe, I don't know, is, is that people want to start a church and they're all hyped up about winning souls for Christ. And soon there is that conflict of different opinions. Why is this? Well, book of James, the fourth chapter, talks about this. So turn to James 4.1. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Bible. This is, this is going to hurt, and this is going to be helpful for us because we all deal with this. Now, I don't want you to be looking at this and dealing with it in the far extremes. Now, is, is that people, you know, out to hurt and bring bodily harm to each other. That, speaking to that, but at times it's just even within the families let alone the neighbors and co-workers. So James 4.1. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war 
within you? What he's saying is that your desires are like rebel soldiers. And if those desires are not met, there is a rebellion that is going on inside of you. And, and if you take notes or anything or, or send yourself a, a text message, remember this. Conflict starts with unmet expectations and desires. Conflict starts when our expectations and desires are not met. It's not like we just have different opinions. It's that it's my opinion that counts. And so James goes on in the second verse and he says this, your desires and you desire and do not have so that you murder. Wow. Now, maybe it may not be physical, but you could murder someone's character by what you say to them or to someone else about them. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, so you do not have because you do not ask. Now, this is really good here because, see, sometimes the thing is, is that we're not looking for God to meet our needs. The problem comes is that when I'm looking at you to meet my needs. Husbands demand the respect from their wives. Wives demand, well, they, they want that romance within their marriage. Employees demand higher wages and better benefits from their employers. The employers want better workers, longer hours, and more commitment. Churches, church members want the pastor to be absolutely perfect and pastors want the church people to be more committed. See, the truth of the matter is when we put the matters on someone else to make us happy, it is not my responsibility to make you happy. It's yours in your relationship with God. There is disappointment leads to disagreement, and then it leads, well, to conflict. There was a historian that he wrote this book about America, and he says, and it's titled The Image. He says, we expect everything and every, um, anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect combat cars which are spacious, luxury cars, which are economical. We expect rich and charitable. We expect powerful and merciful. We expect um, active and reflective. We expect kind and, and then competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin. Anybody gain a few pounds in the past six? Don't even raise your hand. I know. I know. I know. I want you to know I lost in the past six months. So I know. I've learned how to cook for Marlene. You know, she's really, she's really worried now. She's watching, babe. I love you. I know. But, but she's taught me how to cook. I'm really getting into it. And I'm cooking well. And she thinks I'm going to knock her off now because I'm learning how to feed myself. For 52 years, she always did all the cooking. Now I'm helping out. All right. You see, we expect 
to be at the church when it's convenient, yet we want the guiding power of the church within our lives. See, never has there been a generation of people like today that, that have mastered their environment more than we have and yet be so unhappy and in that conflict within ourselves. People's desires are at war within ourselves. So what I'm saying is, look to God to meet those needs. Don't, don't get caught up. Now, we are to serve each other, to help each other, everything we can. I, I tell parents that when, when in the church at times when I'm having one-on-one with them or I'm talking to a group of them, it says, don't expect me to disciple your children. Now, I want, I want to speak into them. That's why we have a, have a children's pastor and a youth pastor. That's vitally important. That's a priority for us. But it's your responsibility and your relationship with God to be able to do that. See, see, the idea, too, is he doesn't want us to be selfish in our prayers. And James 4, 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it it on your passions. It's selfish prayers. God is not some kind of cosmic gen- genie that, who expects only to make you happy. In fact, God is not so much concerned about making you happy. He's more concerned about making you holy. He, he's not so much concerned about making you rich. He's concerned of making you righteous. He's not so concerned about satisfying your needs. He's more concerned about sanctifying your life. So we have to be careful that we don't get caught up in our prayers. Some of you may remember years ago when that was that faith movement. I called it blab it and grab it. You know, you just you just keep saying it over. Lord, I want it, I want this. I want a Cadillac. I want a Cadillac. And I want a Cadillac. But soon, you know, you're thinking that that Cadillac is going to show up in your driveway, as though that God just is his, our, our servant that He's going to get what He wants. See, it's nothing more than just a wish list, and it really doesn't do us any good. See, nothing could be further from the truth in verse 3, and he makes it very clear. God does not answer selfish prayers. There was, there was two people that were walking down the road. One of them was greed, and the other one was envy. Well, they worked together a lot with each other, and they came across this stranger who was going to offer them a wish that they could have. And whoever made the first wish got it. And, and that whatever that wish is, the other person is going to get twice the amount. Well, greed and envy didn't want to help each other out. So they went along trying and they couldn't make up their mind until they almost got down into a knockdown fight until one of them says, okay, okay, I'll make the first wish. I wish that I would go blind in one eye. And they did. And then the other person went blind in both eyes. 
You see, that's what greed and envy really leads to, to nothing really good, is there's always a cost, a consequence when we feel that we get so caught up in ourselves. You see, God does not want us, well, to be not only at odds against him or contrary to some of his, well, commandments, but, but an enemy of his. In James 4, 4, it says this, you adulterous people, do you think he was trying to get their attention? Whew. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's not saying that you make yourself distant or that we're, we're kind of broken off here. He said, we, you are my enemy because he has such a passion for us, such a love for us. And he said he really feels that if you, as a follower of Christ, if you don't follow him and you yield to the things of the world, it is adultery to him. The brokenness that that brings in a relationship. James 4, 5 says, Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the Scriptures say he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? It's hard to wrap my mind around that an almighty, all-knowing, perfect God would have such a desire to have a relationship with us that anything that separates us from that relationship, it makes him jealous. It's staggering. You see, and, and, when, and when that happens, it hurts. And it brings us separation. And he says, you become an enemy. And when there is that warfare, that when I am not right with God, I'm not right with anybody. I tell people who have an anger issue, they say, well, I only have an anger issue at home. I mean, at work. I said, sure, the house is at work. Because when you go home, you carry that anger with you. It's not something that we can put into a nice, safe box and keep it there. And he desires to have that relationship. And if I'm not having that relationship that is healthy, that is fulfilling with him, I'm not going to have a healthy relationship with any of you or anybody out there within the world, especially to those people who rub us wrong, those people who, well, are different than us, those people who are living different than us, those people who are, well, well, maybe the culture they live in is contrary to what you believe as a follower of Christ, and you're so against that, you don't want anything to do with that. You, you, I, I, you should have been with me, a, a, well, a year and a half ago, I went to a Rattlers football game. I'm telling you, I wish you people were like those crazy people in a Rattlers football. I'm, they're nuts. 
They really, I mean, they, when they cheer, they go, they go berserk. They go crazy. I mean, they're running. They don't just give high fives to people beside them. They're giving high fives to people all around them. And, and there was this guy is about six rows down from me. He, the, 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 we scored a touchdown. He went crazy. He, he had this kilt, these, these big comeback boots on. He had this braided hair. He, he had these piercings everywhere on him and that. And, and he was going nuts. And he came up to me and he goes, bam, he goes, man, this is church. I could not miss that opportunity. I goes, buddy, you're talking to the right man. He goes, what do you mean? I says, I'm a preacher. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, you know. And then I says, man, I love your enthusiasm. I would want my people to be, have that kind of enthusiasm in my pews. And he goes, really? We, be, we became best friends. And he was so far removed from anything that I would live, but I loved his passion. And I wasn't going to allow anything what he looked like to miss out on the opportunity of who he is. I wondered, man, I get a guy like that just turned on Jesus Christ. There's nothing going to hold him back, you know. See, in, in James 4, 6, it says, but he gave, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, that got my attention. That word, humble. Now, how am I going to deal with conflict and get my own way and be humble at the same time. It really doesn't work real well because usually we're demanding our own actions. In 1875, a British poet named William Everett Hindley. Anybody ever hear of him? He's a man that he wrote a short poem and, and it was called Invectus. And, and that in the poem, at the very end of the poem, there was a statement that he made that we all have heard one time or another. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. Now, that went on for quite a long time in, in realizing that, wow, th this man is really coming at odds with God. And in the 1980s, that poem encouraged the South African president, Nelson Mandela, through the very darkest times of his life. Clint Eastwood made a movie about a, a South African rugby team and called it Vexus. In, in Vexus. And it was a great movie. I love the spirit of these guys. But, but about, well, Sometimes 16 years after this, this poem was published and how it got people to be able to eliminate God and get caught up in themselves, there was a man who gave his, well, final sermon, and his name was Charles Spurgeon, in June 7th, 1891, in the closing words of his final sermon, he, he made a statement, submit to a better captain for the soul. 
Every person must serve somebody, he said. We have no choice, as it is an absolute guaranteed fact. Those who have no masters are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it, that you will either serve Satan or Christ, either self or Satan. And I want to tell you that when we don't choose God, the world is a much worse taskmaster. He says, put on, I love it, he said, the uniform of Christ, the armor of Christ. Because when you do and you see what he offers us, you would beg to be a part of the ranks of his followers. He cares and loves you so much. But see, my friend, this, this getting along with each other is not that I get my wins and my losses. It is that I allow Christ to be exalted in everything that we do because we cannot serve two people. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will devote to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, well, and money, he said. See, what he's saying is that I want you to learn to submit to him. Humble ourselves, because when I humble myself before God, all of a sudden, I am not so caught up in getting what I want. I'm very content in being able to be what He wants, and through that, what He could do in touching others' lives. You see, in, in verses 7 through 10, He gives... Ten imperatives. Very quickly, he says, the first one, he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. He says, submit yourself. I need to commit to him. Secondly, in, in James 4, 7, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's not that, that he will flee from you because I go, I'm a Christian. He will flee from me when I resist him. I need to take that stand. In James 4, 8, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to me. There is a drawing that, well, the Holy Spirit does that, but it's my will and my choice. I want to be in that relationship with him. How good did it feel to be here Sunday? It felt good to be here Sunday. And it feels good to be here tonight. And I'm so glad you who are online that you are committed to still be a part of what God is doing because that same spirit that dwells in this sanctuary is in your home as well. And he tells us that to draw close to him. Then he tells us in James 4, 8, cleanse your hands you sinners. <laughs> Do I need to explain anything there? Or in verse, and, and then he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wash your hands in your hearts. Clean up your act and your attitudes. 
your, your parents ever say, you know, you better change your attitude. I could remember that when my mother had the broom in her hand, you know. You better change that attitude, boy. And, uh, then I would mouth off to her. And then she would hit me. And then as bright as I was as a teenager, I would say, that didn't hurt. <laughs> Guess what was coming next? There was another blow coming. But after the third or fourth blow, I came to realize, I'm not going to win this thing here. But he goes, let that cleansing come. That's called repentance. Because when I repent, then I could understand your shortcomings. Then verses 6, 7, uh, the, the, the imperative 6, 7, 8, 9 is in James 4, 9. It says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Boy, that doesn't like, sound like fun. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, if our uh, turmoil does not move us to tears, then the resolution of conflict will never bring peace into our lives. I believe that people have rights these days. And I hear out there, no justice, no peace. But you know what I want to say? Is no brokenness, no peace. Why? I wonder what the world would do if there was a march and 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 people would go to wherever they're going, to the governor's mansion or whatever, fall on their knees and begin to weep before the Lord. I was at a promise keeper's service uh, in Washington, D.C. about 25 years ago. There were one million men at that, at that um, promise keeper's. It was in the Washington Mall area. We could not see the, the platform was just too, but there were these great big um, um, screens throughout the crowd that we watched. And all these men, you know, I mean, you know, men among men, we were all standing there because we're men, you know. And, uh, and we were all there. And all of a sudden, seven Messianic Jews came to the platform and they broke out their shofar. And they prayed for peace in the world. And they blew their shofars. And it was like a wave that one million men from the front to the back start falling on their knees without exception. Arlene was watching from home as I was at that Promise Keepers meeting, that gathering. And it, she goes, she was crying like a baby because, you see, we weren't coming before anybody, any of our political leaders. We were humbling ourselves before God. Church, I want you to know that Martin Luther put it this way. He said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God could make nothing out of him. If I want to get my own way, what I do is I give up my way. 
Because when we lower ourselves, he lifts us up. When we humble ourselves, he exalts us. When, when, when we do the opposite of what our carnal nature wants to do, God says, let me move in your life. It's, it's so hard to be able to, well, portray that to a world who doesn't know him because they don't understand us because they don't know him, the Scripture says. So that's why there is such anger towards Christians. But they don't know him. How could they understand us? But when we walk in the humility of God's word, I'm going to say, Lord, I'm going to humble myself that you would be exalted in this situation. When I was a youth pastor decades ago, there was a, a, uh, a speaker that made a statement to me I never forgot. He says, when someone comes up to you and chews you up one side and down the other, take a step back and say, Lord, thank you for bringing them to me because they need me. The world needs us. We will have conflict, and we will have conflict here because you have odds against some of my decisions or anything that I may be doing, but we will have conflict in some of that. But we still could get past that because the purpose of us gathering is to bring glory to Him and that we could grow together. And I love to be able to grow with you, especially when those who disagree with me because they love me enough to be able to tell me. And then we could sit down and reason together as Paul said. And when we reason together, the beauty is that when there comes that resolution of that common ground, now it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about bringing glory to God. How do we make this happen? And church, when we do that, we're seeing a world changed about us. Conflict is nothing to fear or to run away with it. Conflict really is something that unifies us it becomes the instrument of God to unite us as a body of God.